Friends, it is great to be with you this morning. Please open your Bibles, if you will, to 3 John. That is 3 John, not John 3. It's right at the end. Find Revelation, flick back a few pages. Can I go down a little bit, please? Amazing. Perfect. 3 John. We're going to read the whole of the letter. Through John, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Amazing. Normal, average, ordinary. Even though it's not part of what those words actually mean, they somehow carry this negative connotation, don't they? If you said, hey, hey George, how was your Christmas? And I said, ordinary, average. You'd probably assume that I was saying that it wasn't a great Christmas. For the record, I had a lovely Christmas. Thank you for asking. Um, But we've come to New Year, New Year's Eve. And around this time of year, we tend to think about New Year resolutions, things that we're looking forward to for the year ahead. What New Year's resolutions we're going to make and hope to stick to. I've made a few over the years. There was one time I resolved to cut out caffeine entirely. That didn't last. Um, Another year, I decided I want to learn to draw or paint. Couldn't manage it. One year, I decided to read um, everything that C.S. Lewis had ever written until I realized how many books he has actually written um, and didn't get very far through it. I'm also not alone in in my uh, determination to start a new year with with some kind of plan for self-improvement. A good number of people make at least one New Year's resolution. But it is estimated by studies that 
less than 10% of those uh, are actually achieved. I think even a, a shocking amount end by the end of January, but there we are. New Year's res- resolutions, though, they're, they're fated to fail. Um, and this is often because the aspirations that we set are sort of so beyond where we're at normally, what is ordinary for us. Because around New Year, and you just need to sort of have a conversation around with people, and, and you hear that there's this clamor to be extraordinary. And I, I think there's this lie that we kind of believe that we must secure our significance or, or sort of establish the, the importance of a period of time, maybe even a year, by the extraordinary achievements that we, we, sort of achieve, that we get to. Um, otherwise, we're a bit of a failure. Otherwise, our year was a bit of a write-off. And also, friends, people who follow Jesus, we're, we're prone to this just as much as anybody. I remember um, a couple of years ago, I saw this um, reading through the, reading through the, the Bible um, in 30 days, a, a reading plan. I can send it on to you if you'd like, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, in just 30 days from Genesis to Revolution, uh, Re- Revelation, you could read through, you could read through that, the Bible 12 times in one year if you wanted to follow this. And that would probably make us feel extraordinary. In all seriousness, it is a good thing to set goals. It is a good thing to work towards them. And we ought to be intentional and purposeful in the way that we live. We don't want to waste a second of the life that God has given us. But we are in a culture that celebrates newness and excitement and extraordinary uh, experience as a sort of unchallengeable right. Um, and, and we're tempted in the midst of that to believe that just an ordinary life of faithfulness to a God is, who is ancient and, and, and before time. And that, that seems to just be a bit of a stale alternative. An ordinary life of faithfulness. Friends, I really want to bring you to this morning. An ordinary life of faithfulness is anything but a stale alternative. And that brings us to 3 John. Out of interest, show of hands, has anybody heard a sermon on 3 John before? I'm not surprised. Bex, you don't count. That was me practicing yesterday. Um, I'm not surprised. Robert Yarbrough, who is a, uh, who, he's a professor and theologian, he, he wrote that most churches would function a whole lifetime without 2 or 3 John in their Bibles and never miss their absence. And I wonder what you thought as you heard me reading 3 John. Because in recent weeks, we've been hearing these great prophetic passages, um, like ones in Isaiah, filled with this beautiful imagery of enormous significance as it points to the birth of Jesus and the dawning of his new kingdom. We've been reflecting on the messages of angels. We've also... We're also in the middle of a sermon series as a church, exploring um, the Nazarites of Scripture, reading about the extraordinary men doing extraordinary deeds as they live out their lives in a way that is particularly devoted to God. So to move from this to 3 John, it feels like a move from the sublime to the ordinary. It feels sublime and amazing, extraordinary, to rather ordinary, pedestrian. Did that strike you? 
as I read through 3 John. How entirely ordinary this letter is. We've got unheard of people doing a pretty, just doing pretty routine things. If we were playing a kind of quiz about great heroes of the faith in the New Testament, I don't think we'd be thinking our minds would jump to Gaius or, or Demetrius. Simple, ordinary life. And doesn't that, doesn't 3 John then also feel like a weird place for John's writing in the New Testament to kind of end up? Of course, he is going to write Revelation later, but think of the books that, that bear his name, the Gospel of John, his letters, 1, 2, 3, John. This feels like a bit of a strange end when you look back and think about how soaring the theology has been in those earlier works. Think of how the gospel starts. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And as we reflected on this Christmas, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. This is soaring. This is the soaring theology of, of the new kingdom. Indeed, in the Christian tradition, John is often portrayed as, as the eagle, this soaring figure who reaches these great theological heights. Yet, this letter feels really ordinary. And maybe for us, as we think about our own life, as we think about our own church, it, we think it reminds us a little bit, because our own lives and our own church can feel painfully ordinary. It's really easy for us in, in, our, in our walk, in our day-to-day lives, to think that perhaps the real action is happening somewhere else, or, or perhaps it's behind us somehow. It just happened in the past. We look around, and, and we just see a church that's just filled with ordinary people doing ordinary things, living out the drama of ordinary choices in everyday life. Well, as we reflect on 3 John this morning, I think there are two main lessons. And the first one is this, that is okay. Ordinary is okay. Nothing's gone wrong. 3 John finds us at the end of this great generation of the apostles. It's written by the apostle John. He's one of Jesus' closest friends. He's the author of the gospel. And now he's talking to this next generation of people who are to take on the leadership, the care of the church. First one, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. How does John present himself here? He presents himself as an elder speaking to another elder, as co-workers, And this this is a theme that runs on throughout the letter, the way that this great apostle sees the next generation of of ministry workers as co-workers. He wants to honor their ministry, to validate it. Have a look at verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Indeed, you're walking in the truth. The brothers, the reference to them. Then down verse 12, we read about Demetrius. We'll meet him a bit later on. But he's spoken well of. He's loved by everybody, even the truth itself. In this, we see that John is not setting himself up as this eagle among the pigeons, 
but they are brothers and sisters working together one generation to the next. And it, it's normal. It's ordinary. It's church life. And this is also exactly what John's gospel has kind of taught us to expect and look for. The picture you get there, if you remember the opening verses of John's gospel, speaks about how the word became flesh, that we might be called the children of God, that we might be brought into God's family. And now, here in 3 John, it's God's family at work, brothers and sisters serving together. In the same way, in the gospel, you meet these individual characters. Some of them have names, some of them don't. Um, I think of the Samaritan woman in John 4, the blind man in, in John 9. These are people who meet Jesus, and then they go back to their normal lives, but they don't go back the same. They meet him changed, and they just can't help but talk about, um, talk about him serving their new king. And it's just the same here. Gaius, Demetrius, these are normal people doing normal ministry, serving King Jesus together. So that's one thing that 3 John will show us. If we can put it this way, this is how Jesus thinks about the church. He doesn't play top trumps. You know how that game goes. I used to have a copy of the Harry Potter version when I was a kid and loved it. Um, and, and, you know, you look through the cards, and when you get a Dumbledore card or a Harry Potter card, you're like, yes, this is brilliant. High points across the board. Guaranteed win. But then you kind of get one of those run-off-the-mill Weasley cards or like a Neville Longbottom, and you're like, oh, great. And you just know that you're going to lose it. That's not, friends, how Jesus thinks about his church. He doesn't pick up the Apostle John card and think, yes, knowledge of Scripture, 92, win. Or, you know, the Apostle Paul thinks, church planting, 97, yes, got it. And then he picks up my card or your card and thinks, mm, fine, and, and just wanting to toss it away. Friends, the picture here is that wonderfully, all of God's people All of those who are called to be children of God are infinitely valuable in his kingdom, working together in the truth as brothers and sisters. John, Gaius, Demetrius, me, and you. So, lesson number one from three, John. The church was meant to look ordinary. God's new kingdom is meant to be filled with ordinary people living out their ordinary Christian lives. However, what I also want you to see this morning is that there is something extraordinary going on in the midst of all of that ordinariness. And this is because though I am normal, you are normal, though we're very ordinary, we worship an extraordinary God and have heard an extraordinary gospel of his extraordinary new kingdom And that is the new normal that each of us live in. What 3 John is going to show us, I hope, is that this extraordinary gospel is is being worked out in the life of an ordinary church, that the drama of the gospel gets played out in, in things that look really ordinary. Because John has not left all of this 
sweeping, soaring theology behind as we've sort of entered this new era of the New Testament or this, this new stage of the church. That eagle has not disappeared and kind of flown off somewhere into the horizon. Instead, what's happened is that eagle has landed. The, the eagle has landed in the ordinary church, and we're going to get a glimpse of how all of this soaring theology actually goes to work and how the gospel of God's new kingdom transforms the ordinary life of an ordinary community into something extraordinary, into this new kingdom normal. So let's have a look. Three ways in which 3 John links back to the gospel and shows us how the life of this local community is shaped and changed. So first of all, looking at verse 5, I want you to have a look at some, some, something that I'm calling New Kingdom Hospitality, that we see here the welcome of Jesus and those who come in his name. Reading from verse 5, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Here, friends, we're we're talking about those people who go out in Jesus' name, who are engaged in mission. Those who are dependent on others to support them as they go out speaking about Jesus. And this really fits with how Jesus talks, um, how, how he describes for his, his disciples in the Gospels. You'll read about him sending out the 12 and sending out the 72 in similar ways, saying, don't depend on those you're trying to reach, but depend and look for support among God's people. And this also seems to fit with how Paul went about his ministry too, not relying on others to meet his needs. So, That's what Gaius is is being commended for here. People are continuing to go out working for the gospel and proclaiming it. And Gaius is one of those people who's meeting their, their needs and providing for them. He's extending hospitality. Because these these are people whose life work is to go out and proclaim to to make proclaim Jesus, to make him known. But, friends, why is this hospitality so crucial? Why is, why is the elder, why is John so excited about it? Well, I think it's because it really takes us to the heart of the Christian gospel. Think of John chapter 1. Again, it describes how Jesus is the true light that gives light to everyone. He came into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. At the start of John's gospel, friends, the story of the gospel is is actually presented as a question of hospitality. Jesus has come into the world, into his world, the world that he made, and yet largely he's, he's not recognized or or welcomed. He comes in God's name, but the world says no. 
There are some who receive him, those who believe in his name, and they become the children of God. So the question of the gospel is the story of whether or not we will receive Jesus, whether we will welcome him, whether we'll believe in him and find our place in God's family and and join the family business, which is sending people and being sent out into the world so that more might become part of Jesus' family. We see that pattern worked out in the gospel, that the father sends the son and the son sends us, and, and then we're called to work together on that mission. It's just what we see reflected here in Gaius and his church. They're playing their part. They're welcoming and supporting those who have gone out in the name of Jesus. This is no small thing, friends. In many ways, this is anything but ordinary. This is a group of people who've realized that God is doing something in the world, and they want in. They want on board with that. They want to be co-workers. And how did Gaius get here? Gaius was commended, but how did he get here? Let's remind ourselves about what we know about Gaius. He's, John describes him as a man who is walking in the truth, verse 3, and he's known for his love, verse 6. 3, three John is presenting Gaius' hospitality as the resulting expression of um, this overflow of divine love and grounded in truth. Gaius clearly knows his theology, his truth. He knows that he's been welcomed into God's new kingdom through the name of Jesus. He knows the love he's received, and he's committed to reflecting this love towards others. New kingdom hospitality, friends, is the resulting overflow of love grounded in truth. So, as we just reflect on that, what that means for us, I want to encourage us with that same thought. This kind of response to Jesus, welcoming in and going out, this is ultimately participation in what God is doing in this, in this beautiful city of London and in this beautiful world. It flows out of experiencing the incredible joy of God's love by being grounded in the truth. And what an incredible reason to be picking up our Bibles every single day. What a great reason to be joining in with one of the community Bible reading plans that we're going through this year. And then we think about our supportive mission. And I'm talking all kinds of mission here, friends. Not, not just global, but local too. We're, we're joining in with what God is doing. God has sent his son into the world, and his son has sent us. And one of the parts that we can do is to go, and one of the parts that we can do is to support those who are going out in, in Jesus' name. We are co-workers. We're together in it. If we take this to heart... Friends, it presents us an opportunity for us to ask, how can we walk in truth together? How can we support the mission of God in this city, in this country, in this world? What, for each of us, does an overflow of love grounded in truth look like? It doesn't need to be on a grand, worldwide scale. It can encourage us in our ordinary moments of everyday hospitality. That, that moment when we extend a welcoming invitation to another in Jesus' name, whether it's for a coffee, a meal, anything. Any time that we are having each other's backs as we go out and speak about Jesus. In that moment when you invite a friend or a family to come and share a meal with, with you, even though that, that that person 
the only thing you might have in common is the name of Jesus. But because they are his people or they, are, they belong to him, they're part of his new kingdom, we welcome them. And they, they join us around our table because they are now our family. Ordinary hospitality is bringing people together for God's new kingdom. And then second, here in 3 John, we see worked out the choice between love and self-love and how being part of God's new kingdom, transformation happens. We've seen the hospitality of Gaius. Now we need to meet Diotrephes. Verse 9. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So... If I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So here's Diotrephes, and he is refusing to show that kind of hospitality and that kind of welcome that we've been talking about. Here is someone who wants to run the show, to decide who is welcome and who's not. And John tells us why. It's because he loves to be first. He's concerned for his name and reputation and not for the name of Jesus. Thank you. Cultivating the beauty of hospitality, friends, as I'm sure we've all experienced, it's not easy. People are different. They eat in different ways. They annoy us sometimes. Let's be real. Cultivating hospitality, welcoming others in, is not easy. Because it's about discipleship. It'll cost us some preferences. And putting it another way, there's, there's a certain dying to self for the sake of extending grace to our diverse neighbors that needs to happen. The cultivation of this this gospel-shaped community is a gospel pursuit. And it's an issue that shows up in John's gospel in a couple of places. John explains to us a number of times why it is that people don't believe in Jesus. And friends, it's not the reasons that we might expect. It's not that they didn't understand who he was or some other kind of intellectual question. Instead, we find out people don't believe in Jesus through a question that Jesus asks in John chapter 5. He says to the crowds, how can you believe since you already accept glory from one another? That is to say, they're, they're far too concerned with what each other thinks about them that they're able to see the glory that is revealed in Jesus. Later on, John tells us that people won't stand with Jesus because they love human praise more than praise the praise of God. And friends, it's the same thing here with Diotrephes. He would rather be first. He'd rather be someone that everything is all about the center of attention and and see praise and and glory directed towards him rather than stepping aside and, and letting Jesus have what is rightfully his. It it reveals something for all of us as well, as the world meets Jesus, that we are. By, by nature, concerned with pursuing our own glory and praise. And we're too busy concerning, concerned with that than, than to welcome Jesus. John Calvin, the great theologian, says this, 
There is no one who does not cherish within themselves some opinion of their own preeminence. Each individual, by flattering himself, there is a kind of kingdom in his heart. Friends, we each want to be preeminent. That is our natural state. We want to flatter ourselves and think that deep down, everything, the world revolves around us. It is all about us. And so we bear this kingdom in our heart, expecting the praise and the glory to come to us. And then the same thing that we see happening in the Gospels is now happening in the church, as we see in 3 John. It's another way that we get to see these themes in John being worked out here in the life of the church. Let's reflect on that, though, a minute for a second. If you, friends, are not a Christian here today, let me ask you why. There are a lot of good reasons. I wasn't brought up in a Christian home. There are a lot of good reasons why we might not follow Jesus. We might want more time to think about it. We might be people who are asking, you know, who is this Jesus? You know, how can I be sure about all of this? Or why should I trust any of it? Friends, they are great questions, and we would love to spend some time thinking about them with you, maybe even joining the SALT course that's starting in February. Um, But here in 3 John, there's actually a warning that in the end, it might actually come down to the fact that you love to be first in your life, that you carry around a kingdom in your heart, that you want your own preeminence, And you see that following Jesus means setting that aside and putting him and others first. And friends, also, there's a warning for the church too. For those of us that say we're Christians and we go out in the name of Jesus, remember back in John's gospel, those people who rejected and opposed Jesus, they were the opponents. Um, But now in 3 John, we see that it's come into the church Here's Diotrephes. He calls himself a Christian. He probably hosts a life group. He's probably very hospitable to those people that he's chosen to gather around him. But he loves to be first. Christian, to reflect God's light, we can't ever seek the limelight. I think sometimes we get a little bit confused about who the light of the world is. So... What do we do? What, what do we do recognizing this universal condition in ourselves? Well, the answer, friends, is simply to come to our King Jesus because he's the only one who can transform us. This self-obsession, um, it's not something we can ever fix ourselves. It's something we can barely recognize and acknowledge in ourselves, let alone fix it. But Jesus does not just reveal it, but he fixes it for us. This is a theme that you can work your way all the way through the Bible and see this constant promise that God is the one who will change our hearts, who, who will give us a new birth, who can wash us clean, who can use, by, yeah, by his spirit, he, he, he changes us inwardly forever. It's the great promise of the gospel of his new kingdom that he can help us. He can change us. And there's actually a beautiful example of this in the person who wrote 3 John. If you remember from the stories of, uh, of, of Jesus' earthly ministry, there's this point in, um, when we see in, in John's life 
that John loved to be first. The Gospels tell us about this moment when um, John and his brother, James and John, the, the sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What, uh, you know, Jesus replied, what do, you want, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, that, what, that one of us sits at your right hand and one of us sits at your left in your glory. James and John loved to be first. They wanted to be first. And they also had the wrong idea about what this new kingdom would look like. But as they came to Jesus, their, their hearts were transformed. They were transformed and they were able to glimpse the glory and praise that is due Jesus and to set that aside, set, set aside the kingdom in their own hearts that they might let Jesus reign as king in their hearts. So how is the gospel at work in this very ordinary letter, in this very ordinary church? There's hospitality. There's a welcome extended to those who, who come in Jesus' name because this church is overflowing with, with love that is grounded in truth. And within that, there's this transformation of loves to, as we become subjects of this new kingdom that chooses love over self-love, Amen. something that Jesus himself brings as we see him as king. And the final thing I want us to notice is the power of a good example. Again, another way, this is, this is another thing we can trace um, from 3 John right back to the Gospel of John. We're looking at verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the, uh, from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, we don't really know why. Demetrius was a good example. In all likelihood, he's the one bringing the letter, so they're going to see that, that all worked out. But nonetheless, in 3 John, we're told about the power of imitation, and for better or worse, a Diotrephes or a Demetrius. It's another theme, as I said, that, can go, that goes all the way back to the gospel, because there's a chain that runs from Demetrius to John to Jesus to God the Father himself. Hear this great note of imitation as we go through. In John 15, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. God the Son has known the love of God the Father, and it is in, that not, it is in the knowledge and experience of that love that he is now sharing and imitating when he comes to love us. And then Jesus sets us that same great example to love, turn back with me, if you've still got your Bibles open, to John chapter 13. It's that familiar scene in the, the upper room. It's this beautiful story of, of Jesus at the meal and how he washes his disciples' feet. John chapter 13, verse 4. Jesus rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then down to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If, if I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, 
you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Jesus set them an example. They can now see the love and they've experienced this kind of love from Jesus and they're invited to show that to others. Notice that question. Jesus asked them, do you understand what I've done for you? So this idea of imitation isn't just picking up some biography off the shelf and reading about some great deeds of, that someone did long ago and, and looking to imitate that. In fact, it is so much more. It's imitating the love that we've experienced and been shown ourselves. The Son, Jesus, loves us out of his experience of the Father's love. And we are to, ex- we are to experience that love and love from that. We're to imitate it. We're to copy it. It's a love that doesn't, um, doesn't choose to be first. It takes the place of a servant and doesn't wait to be served, but serves. So here in John, we get the beginning of this imitation theme. For those in the new kingdom, we imitate the Father by imitating Jesus. But John's first letter, will take this a little further. This is 1 John, um, 1 John 3, 16. I'd noticed in preparing for this, John has something about 3, 16s. They're, they're quite beautiful. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the Lord's love abide in him? You see how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We imitate him and his love. And then we get to 3 John, and we see this, this command to not imitate evil, but imitate good. There's this new link set in place as, as John and others have imitated the love of Jesus and now become examples to us. This link is still rooted in that eternal love the Father has for the Son um, and then that Jesus has shown his people. But now we're called, along with Demetrius, to be examples for others and to be imitating others. So as we finish, what, does, what would this mean for our life together as part of God's new kingdom? First, we will only be those who imitate what is good and, the good, and be good examples to others by, if, if we are sustained by the love of Jesus ourselves. If we are constantly reflecting on how he has loved us and knowing and experiencing the love out of that reflection, from that we might go and love others. We must trace this chain back to Jesus and then to the love of the Father. But this doesn't mean that we just look there. That's not very practical on a day-to-day basis. And this, this is meant to be ordinary. This is meant to be day-to-day. 3 John says that someone as unheard of as Demetrius can be a great example to the church. And this means, friends, that we can find examples everywhere. Here in our church, there are examples as our own little embassy to God's new kingdom. One of the great opportunities before church or after church as we 
share snacks and coffees or meals with each other, is being able to talk about what it's like to follow Jesus after one year, two year, five year, 10 year, 50 year. Maybe that conversation could extend to a meal, to weekly or monthly meals, regular hospitality as we walk alongside one another. And then lastly, it also means that this, this example should be lived out in our own lives. I know lots of us may be thinking, well, obviously John, definitely Jesus, but how can I be a good example? Notice two things. One, perfection is not the standard, friends. And second, imitation is this gift of God's grace. It's not just another thing for your religious to-do list. Of course, Jesus loved perfectly, and that he calls all people to imitate that love, but that's not implying that we are going to be loving perfectly as he loved. Nonetheless, John, frail human John, is an example for us in that. And one last thought. Perhaps each of us need to realize that we already are an example to one another. You're already an example to people. It's one of those painful lessons that I hear that you learn in parenting, something I'm going to be learning soon. Um, and, yeah, something I know that some of you guys know very well. Um, I also know this as my time as a school teacher, but there are times in which kids will intentionally imitate us, to mock us. That's fine. But it's also much more troubling when you notice in those moments that they imitate you without intending to. When you see yourself reflected back and you realize about how you respond and handle frustration and how it's pictured to them. This isn't just for people who have children or work around them, though. It it works its way out in, in ways that, in, throughout our life, how we are in our friendships, in our work relationships, how we handle conflict and disappointment, what place God has in our life, all of this is observed. And in a lot of ways, it is already an example to others. The question then simply is, what kind of example are we going to be? Are we going to be those who choose along with Demetrius, along with Gaius, along with John, to be those who don't love to be first, but instead are by shaped by, by the love that they've received and known in Jesus and imitate him? Amen. Or are we going to love to be first and be examples like Diotrephes? How may our New Year's resolutions be shaped by that question? Are we going to start our year seeking novel distractions Or are we going to resolve to live our ordinary lives together, serving an extraordinary God as he brings his new kingdom normal from his church outwards? So, as we've seen, 3 John is a letter that I hope you agree is not dull and ordinary. It shows us how the gospel gets out and and is lived out in the life of the church. God sent his son into the world so that many might join his family and go out and make him known to show the hospitality of his new kingdom and support those who are going out in Jesus' name shows that we've grasped that great mission of God and long to be part of what he's doing. To embrace the call to be those who don't love to be first but 
who instead are ready to, to serve, to take, the, to take up the towel, shows that that gospel has taken root in our heart. And then seeking to be those examples, imitating what is good, and ourselves being those who are shaped by that love of Jesus, taking up that towel, this is how the gospel gets worked out. Extraordinary new kingdom normal in a life of a very ordinary church.